Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind, let's roll. We are going through the Anchored in the Word series, reading through God's Word in two years. People say, Rick, what's your favorite book? Whatever book I'm reading is my favorite book at the moment, so I get really excited. We're going to stand in a few moments after our introduction to share with you the message, The Last Chance. In this passage, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 12. If you have a Bible, make your way to Matthew chapter 12. We'll be picking it up at verse 22. But we look at the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. And what is that unpardonable, unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Years ago, I was going to preach this uh, message on our Saturday night and Sunday morning services. 20 years ago, the Lord was blowing up our ministry in Idaho. We were just blessed beyond measure. And uh, my father and I, it was the 4th of July um, on the uh, Saturday or Friday or Saturday that year. And uh, we were looking for a, a youth camp property that was within about an hour drive from our facility there in Idaho Falls. And so we had went up to this mountain property and we checked it out. My pop and I were looking at it. We were driving back and him and I were just fellowshipping and having a lot of fun on this 4th of July. It was probably 11 in the morning. And we see up in front of us, probably maybe a quarter of a mile, just this poof, this cloud of smoke on, uh, on the freeway. And we were both startled by it because we we couldn't see what happened we just saw this smoke and as we rolled up on the scene I was the my dad and I were the first ones on the scene of a head-on collision at 70 miles an hour and and the equivalent of hitting a brick wall at 140 miles an hour 170 miles an hour a Chevy Tahoe with eight people in it and a couple in a uh, Dodge Ram truck for a four-wheel drive and they had hit, and the entire front of their vehicles were just smashed all the way back to the windshield. And my dad and I knew just what we were going to see, but I, I jumped out of the rig, and I checked on the couple. They were seat belted in, and they were just white as a sheet with shock. And uh, we called 911, and it appeared that both of their legs were broken, but they were in their seat belts and airbags, and so they were going to be all right. So I went over to the next vehicle, and uh, I started with the driver, and there was five people dead. So I went from person to person, checking for a pulse, seeing if I could help, and you know, crawling into the vehicle, seeing if I could help. And there was one, um, the sixth person was probably about you know, 15 minutes away from dying, and the death row is really, really tragic, very uh, gut-wrenching. My dad was following me around about 10 feet behind me and all I could hear him say, oh Lord, have mercy, oh Lord, have mercy. He kept praying over and over again. I came around to the back of the vehicle and all the windows were blown out of the entire rig. It's just like and, But in the back, the window was blown out, but there were two 12-year-olds in the back. And I still remember their names, it was 20 years ago. It was Henry and Deanna. And they were 12-year-olds and, and I looked at them to see if they were you know, harmed, and I began to talk with Deanna, and, and Henry's uh, femur was broken, um, quite obviously, but then as I looked from the back, you see, 
in the driver's seat was Henry's dad, mom, and little sister. They were all dead. And in the next seat, Deanna's mom and sister and aunt. The aunt was soon to die. She died just on the way to the hospital. And Deanna said, because the way that they were in there, they were surrounded. They were a Vietnamese family that ran a nail shop, uh, you know, fingernails. And they hadn't taken a vacation in like five years. They were meeting other family members in Yellowstone and coming through our neighborhood, going to Yellowstone. And surrounding these two 12-year-olds was five-gallon buckets of rice and frozen fish. And it's like, worked like airbags in the back for these kids. And... Uh, Deanna, because of the way that they were seated in there, they could see all of their loved ones that had just passed away. And Deanna's like, please help me get out of here. And I said, no, don't, don't move, Deanna. You know, you've been around a lot of accidents. Just, let's see. I said, does everything move? Let's see if everything moves. And she moves her arms and she moves her. She says, I'm fine. Please get me out of this vehicle. So I helped Deanna get out. And this is one of the most mind-blowing things. When you hit at 70 miles an hour head on, Deanna's pants, she was unharmed from head to toe. But from her hips to her ankles, her seams in her pants were blown out from the the force of the, like her, her pants almost blew right off her body. It was amazing that she was unhurt. And Henry had to stay there. His femur was broke. But Henry just became an orphan in that accident. I went the next day to the hospital. I was there to the emergency workers and kind of handed things off. And... Uh, got back in the vehicle, really just almost like, felt like somebody just su- punched you in the gut. Like it was so overwhelming that to come on a scene of death like that and to, you know, be feeling for pulses. I went to the hospital the next day to see him, see if they're, you know, how's Deanna doing? She was, she was telling stories. It was like, I mean, she, you know, everybody copes with things differently. And uh, they had Henry in traction with pins for his femur, but there was a big brouhaha in the hospital because the stepdad was trying to get Deanna, or the real dad was trying to get Deanna. There was a bad divorce, and all the family was arguing and fighting. There was like 20 people in there, Vietnamese, you know, arguing in Vietnamese. And when I walked in, because I'm, I'm Pastor Rick, I've done a lot of hospital visits, I walk in, and the hospital counselor says, oh, Pastor Rick, you're here to help us. I said, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> I said, I came to see Deanna, and I came to see Henry, and I, I came to love on the, the kids and see how they're doing. And, um, but the, my message that I'd been studying all week was this message. The unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The title of our message today is Your Last Chance. There is a line that you will cross we know not where. There is a time that you will pass, we know not when, when you will take your last opportunity to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When your heart beats that last time, your lungs stop breathing, your last opportunity has passed you by. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You don't know if you get tomorrow. You don't know if you get next week. You don't know if you get next month. Let's stand together and read this passage that Jesus shares with us some startling revelations about the unpardonable sin. Starting at verse 22 in Matthew chapter 12. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. 
He healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I said cast out demons, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He, will, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men." Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word. In your grace, Lord, draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The first glimpse we get in this story, which elicits this whole issue, because the envy of the ministry of Jesus by the Pharisees and the Sadducees was off the charts. And when Jesus, as we see this growing faith, he heals a guy that is both uh, blind and mute. Now that would be something, wouldn't it? You see a 20-year-old, he can't see, he can't talk. Jesus prays for him, heals him, and now he can see and he can talk. I mean, it would, just, it would blow your mind. And so the audience now has growing faith because they're listening to Jesus declare the truth and they're watching him display his authority of power to heal people. And it says in verse 23, all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David, which is a euphemism for the Messiah? They were waiting for the Messiah. They're like, could this be the son of David, the Messiah of Israel? And they had faith growing in their hearts. They had this groundswell, those seeds that had been planted by God's word as Jesus declared it to them, now is beginning to grow and blossom and they're actually speaking with their mouth. That's how you know faith is growing. The Bible says, I believe, therefore I spoke. You know, you sincerely do not believe something unless you will, until you will say it with your mouth. Because you see, it's with the heart that you believe unto righteousness, but with mouth, your mouth, confession is made unto salvation. The heart and the mouth are connected. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the evidence that they're drawing close to the Lord in faith, the multitudes are ever getting closer to the Lord, but the religious leaders are seeing all the same miracles with a different reaction. The same sun that melts wax can also harden clay. And for them, their hearts are made of clay. And it's as if it's in the fire of the furnace of a potter getting harder and harder with every miracle, every message that Jesus is declaring. And it's this that begins to uh, push them towards going down the road of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by the words that they speak. Just like the people saying, could this be the son of David was evidence of growing faith, 
their declaration, as we see here, their growing rejection in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub is the ruler of the flies, and never another name for the devils, for Satan. And so they're saying he's casting out demons by Beelzebub through the power of demonic forces. To smear people's character so people will stop listening to them is as old as humanity and Satan himself. This is the way it works. This is the way it works on social media, right? It's smear and fear. They want to smear you. You're, if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, then you're a homophobe and you're a bigot and you're all these different things. None of it's true, but that's how they try to shut you up. And this is how the Pharisees are trying to stop those who are trying to declare faith and go towards the Lord. They're trying to get in their way and be an obstacle by demonizing Jesus. When I was a young Christian, a uh, Calvary Chapel started in my hometown or close to my hometown. And in 1979, it had started. And when we went there, I got saved in 1984. And I went there for the first time, and I started going there, and then my friends that heard about it that were not saved, and they knew I was a Christian, they already had a beef that I had come to Christ, and I was telling them about church, and they said, oh, that's a cult. And they went on this whole rampage about the new church I was going to as a cult. Now, I was very young and uninformed and did not grow up in church, and I'm like, what do you mean I'm going to a cult? Tell me why I'm going to a cult. And, and my friend Randy said, well, I saw people coming out of that church, and they were in shorts and flip-flops. And I was waiting for the punchline, like, and? And he goes, well, we all know that that's how people at a cult dress. I'm like, By the way, anybody here got flip-flops on this morning? Raise your hand. Just want you to know you're welcome. Good to have you here. <laughs> it's a little too cold maybe for the flip-flops today. <laughs> yeah, need some shoes on your feet. But it was, it was strange to me that my friends were trying to basically besmirch the character of this congregation that was just worshiping Jesus and teaching the Bible because, you see, they didn't want to come to faith. And they didn't want their friends to come to faith. And they figured the best way to do that is to smear the reputation by lying about the church. There's nothing new in this. It's just like age old. But the reality is, is that they are revealing their heart that is actually more sinister and dark than that because if you go through life constantly ascribing the genuine work of the Lord to Satan, it re is giving revelation that your heart is hard and headed towards the unpardonable sin. I love Jesus' crystal clear reality check here because he just logically goes through this because it makes no sense, right? Why would the Satan cast out his demons when he wants to possess people? I mean, it's ridiculous. And I love that it just seems so methodical that Jesus goes through this blow by blow. And I love this in verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. and Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. He knew their thoughts. Now, I think it would be a freaky thing to hang out with Jesus since he would know everything I'm thinking about all the time. Now, I mean, there's just times you don't want people to know what's going through your head, right? In one passage, Jesus is having dinner with Simon the Pharisee, and this woman is washing Jesus' feet because they, had, they ate at a triclinium, which is a low table like this, and they would lean on their elbow, and their feet would be away from the table. So this woman was out here 
literally just weeping in repentance and crying on Jesus' feet. And with her hair, she's washing Jesus' feet. What a tender picture. And the, Simon the Pharisee, he doesn't say it out loud. He, the thought just goes through his mind while he's at the table with Jesus. It goes through his mind. Like, he really must not be a prophet because he wouldn't let that woman touch him. And Jesus looks at him in that moment and it says, and Jesus knew his thoughts. Can you see Jesus like, not good, Simon. <laughs> and it elicits a parable. He says, you know, if somebody uh, has a big debt and they're forgiven or has a little debt and it's forgiven, who do you think loves the person the most? And he goes, well, I guess the person that's forgiven more. He said, that's right. He said, Simon, those who are forgiven much love much. But you feel like you're, it's like you're forgiven little. This woman, he said, I came into your house and it's customary you wash my feet as a guest. You didn't wash my feet. She's washed my feet with her hair. I came into your house, and, and it's customary for you to give me a kiss. You didn't give me a kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. I came into your house, and you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointing my, my feet with her perfume after she's washed my feet. Simon, in this picture, who loves more? Because who's forgiven more? All from simply Simon, Simon having a thought go through his mind. That whole sermon came out. If Jesus looked inside my mind, we would have Sermonville <laughs> continuous. You get me? Like the things that go through your mind. Sometimes I startle myself. I'll be driving down the road. I have a crazy thought. I was like, I scared myself. <laughs> like, you have weird thoughts. And so Jesus knew their thoughts, and so he begins to tell them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, to destruction. A city can't stand if it's divided, and a household can't stand if it's divided. A marriage can't stand if it's divided, right? What is happening in America right now? Can our nation stand with the division? Can our city stand if there's not more unity? Because you see the whole push in culture, if you don't know this, first of all, this is satanic tactics. This is what he does, is he divides and conquers, is he pits people against each other, he does it in marriages, he does it in relationships, he does it in, well, he does it in nations. And this is how socialism works. Socialism comes in, it finds the people that have ancient hatreds, and it pits them together. That's why the whole racism thing is now on steroids with critical race theory, because it's a push of socialism to come in and pit races against each other so that it can divide, it's subversion. And, and so, this is uh, psychological operations. This is what nations do all over. They just come into a city. If they want a capital to fall, they come in and they find all the factions that are against each other. Then they have the agitators that fire all those people up. And pretty soon, you have a, a nation fall. And you have a coup or whatever takes place. It's called the fifth column. You know, it's this picture of there's four columns of military coming towards your city. But they have a fifth column that they inserted there secretly two years before. So the fifth column is on behind the protection of the wall. They're destroying things from the inside to pit people against each other. Realize this is just satanic tactics. Jesus reveals all of it to help us out. Maybe you've been giving in and now posturing in division within your relationships, within a congregation, and you don't clear, clearly see, but Jesus' crystal clear Clarity tells us this. Verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Makes no sense. Satan wants to rule the world. He wants everybody to worship him. He's not going to be casting out any demons. He wants this to happen. How then will his kingdom stand? 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Their sons or other, they had Jewish uh, uh, exorcists, if you will, and they had their ancient approach to doing this, probably very ineffective. We see in the book of Acts that the sons of Sceva, he had seven sons of Sceva, and he went, they went to, <laughs> this is hilarious, because they saw that Paul the Apostle was casting out demons in the authoritative name of Jesus, and so they went, and this is what they said to the demon-possessed man, <laughs> the sons of Sceva. We cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They didn't know Jesus. <laughs> and so it's an epic. It's like a movie scene, if you will. The demon-possessed person, you know, they've got to have that gravelly voice. It's like the demon said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? And it says, he beat them up and ripped their clothes off and they took off running naked down the street, literally. Because you can't have a second-hand relationship with Jesus and cast out anything and have any power. Now, if you know Jesus, you have all the authority in that spiritual realm. But these sons had no authority and they were probably very inept at it. Verse 28, and if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, Satan's not casting out himself. So if I am by the Spirit of God, now this is a fascinating doctrine that I don't want to plunge into because I can nerd out on stuff like this, is that Jesus, though it says that he did not lay hold of his deity as something to be grasped, it tells us in uh, the book of Philippians. What he did is Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit as a man, though he was fully God, he did not lay hold of his deity to operate like that. He as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit was casting out demons, just like you can and I can. This reality is so important because if that's really what's happening in the scene that we're reading, all these people should be in awe. The Spirit of God is here casting out the kingdom of darkness, satanic possession, casting it out, and we should be trembling in worship of who Jesus is, right? But they're not. Because the heart that gets hard and gets hard and gets hard, very much, and you're like, how can people see these miracles and do it? Well, think about Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh sees miracle after miracle after miracle. And the Lord said that he was gonna harden Pharaoh's heart to make an example of him so that these 10 incredible epic plagues would be uh, unforgettable, right? But the reality is, Pharaoh was wanting to harden his heart also. He hardened his heart. And if you go back and forth, it says, and the Lord hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it's like a heart-hardening festival. <laughs> There's a lot of hardness going on. And as we're sitting here right now, there are those who have, you're growing in faith and you're drawing close to the Lord. But some of you in this room, by sheer numbers, not some prophetic word. Though, oh, wait, I got a word. Somebody right over here? No, just kidding. <laughs> totally freak you out. Uh, the reality is that by sheer numbers, there are some of you, your hearts are just hardening. You've been coming to church. I've observed something about timing, that people have about three to four months as an unsaved person coming to church that they're either going to get saved or get fed up with hearing the truth. Like they come for three or four months and they're kind of pressing in, but they're also leaving just grumbling and complaining and angry about you, that stinking preacher. <laughs> I invited a... Uh, 
coworker, another tile setter, to go to church with me on Sunday morning. And, and I wasn't really paying it. His name was Joey. And I wasn't really paying attention to Joey. I was really into the sermon. I was on the edge of my seat. You know, I got my little highlighter. I'm going to highlight things. I'm a young Christian. And then I get this really strong, almost satanic vibe next to me. And I, and I look at Joey, and Joey's like this. And I kind of lean back, and I said, Joey, what's up? Joey says, I hate that guy's guts. And I started thinking to myself, Joey seems so nice at work. I think he might have a critter inside of him. This is, this is, this is kind of scary, right, in this moment. I hate that guy's guts. I'm like, I said, do you know him? He goes, no, I've never met him in my life. That seems a little irrational, doesn't it? But he hated the message of the truth. You can come to church so long, and you're either going to go towards the Lord, or you're going to leave in a hard condition. In verse 29, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Jesus says, I'm the strong guy that's going to come and conquer this other strong guy, and I'm going to plunder the goods. What's the goods? That's human souls. So I'm the only one that can come in and subdue Satan in your life, and then release you because I am stronger than Satan to plunder the goods of a saved soul. Because of this, we have a lot of people, you know, they go around binding, in Jesus' name, everything, binding the strong man, a lot of binding going on. Now, I understand the doctrinal principle. I think it's great to pray it. But to bind everything from the oranges on your counter to the, you know, there's just, there's a point of ridiculousness that it becomes. Because you realize we're in a spiritual battle. You can pray that the Lord would bind the strong man so that that person you love can be saved. Because truly, honestly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to the, those who the God of this age has blinded their mind. So they're blind because Satan has blinded their mind. So we're praying against that. We're praying that the Lord would bind Satan so that they can have free shot. I am convinced that if we can pray when we're praying for somebody's soul, that the Lord would just push the devil back from that person's life so that they could get a clear picture of who Jesus is without that satanic influence. I believe, you know, 99% of people are just gonna surrender to Jesus because once you see the beauty of who he is and what he's done, you want to believe. But Satan is constantly lying and uh, trying to pit humanity against the God, God and his love. Now Jesus put, brings it really to the this point of decision in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You're either with Jesus and you're helping gather, or you're against Jesus and you're scattering. You go, no, 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 wait, wait, no, no, no. I, I'm like Switzerland, man. I'm like neutral. There is no Switzerland. Do you realize this? You know, well, I'm on the fence. You know, I've been thinking about Jesus. I'm on the fence. You, you realize the devil owns the fence that you're sitting on, right? He owns the fence. If you're on the fence, to be undecided is to be decided. Get that through your mind. To be undecided about Jesus is to be decided. You have decided against. You go, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I'm back. And I talk to people, and they're like, oh, they're trying to find this neutral place. I'm like, it doesn't exist. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either bringing people to Christ or you're pushing them away by who you are. There is no neutral ground. There are only two groups of people in this world. Those who know Jesus and those who do not. Only two groups. Not all, all the other names and various, all that's just smoke screen. There's two people, groups of people. Those who know Jesus and are saved, 
and those who do not. Ask yourself, as it says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You should take stock. You should take a personal inventory. Is Jesus my savior? Have I made that decision? When did I make that decision? And it blows my mind, though, the majority of people can only handle so much of church three or four months when there's, you know, going forth. Other people can figure out how to turn it out. I was talking to an old guy, and I said, hey, you know, I know you go to that church. And he goes, yeah, I went there for 50 years. And I said, how is the sermons? And he got this big grin on his face. He goes, I don't know. I said, you said you went every Sunday morning. He goes, I do. He goes, I go into church, and I'm talking to everybody, and as soon as the sermon starts, I turn off my hearing aids. And as soon as this sermon's over, I turn my hearing aids back on and I talk to the people. It's like a social club, right? Just, just turn off the hearing aids. I, I see you back there. You're, you're turning yours back on. God bless you. That's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the startling revelation. All these things are just indicators that they're headed towards this moment. And Jesus now honors the Holy Spirit in a way that we have never seen the Holy Spirit honored in Scripture. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus so loved the world that he laid his life down at the cross and then rose from the dead. And Jesus said, if I go to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work in this beautiful uh, unity of the triune God in this, the three in one, their wonderful relationship with each other. But the Holy Spirit now is honored in such a way that he's like, you know, you can speak against just think about how much you hear in a month, how much you hear God's name in vain, right? At where you work, wherever you are, right? People use God's name in vain so much you would think they know him. People use Jesus' name at work so much you would think you know him, right? But it's all in vain. But you don't hear people actually using the name of the Holy Spirit in a cursed phrase, do you? Right? It's God, condemn this. Jesus, whatever, <laughs> They have their, their follow through. And then, but for the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 31, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Check that out. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So technically, I want to give you an interpretation that is technical in a sense, and then one that is broader and, and the most broadly well accepted. Technically, to ascribe the supernatural work of God to Satan in this context is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, technically and narrowly defined. If you say, say the gift of tongues, if you say that gift of the Spirit is demon-energized, that would be in that category of ascribing something that is supernaturally given by God, by the Spirit of God, and now you're condemning it as a work of Satan. And churches take that tack. They'll say it's either psychosomatic, which means you're crazy, you're making it up, or you are demon-possessed. And that's, that's tragic because that's not true, the, the gift there, and I, I only use that gift specifically because that's a specific target of this subject about being satanic. And, but in a broader sense, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's look at a couple of verses to kind of wrap it in this package that the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit is to draw you to Christ. That's the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit. It says in John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11, 
When he has come, speaking of the Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you, do, you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus said the Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna convict the world of three things. First of all, of sin. What is sin? To miss the mark by not believing in Jesus. He convicts us, hey, we should believe in Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts. Of righteousness, he says, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. That might seem a little mysterious, but basically what he's saying, of righteousness. This righteousness of the perfect sacrifice that was crucified and rose from the dead is the only one that heaven will accept, and you see me no more. So since that righteousness is the only righteousness, the Holy Spirit is to draw me to Christ, to believe in Jesus, and to identify with the perfect righteousness that's only found in Christ. And thirdly, in judgment, I convict the world of judgment because the God of this world is judged. At the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan and his judgment against him. Satan has lost his power to condemn us in sin and the fear of death. He's powerless now in the child of God's life. In John 14, 17, it says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit's with you alongside you, drawing you, wooing you to Christ. And then when you believe in Jesus, he comes inside of you. This is the work of the spirit of God to save a soul. In John 15, it says, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to testify of himself. The Holy Spirit's constantly saying, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, come to Jesus, have faith in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. So if we put all that together, we realize that when we are resisting the message to come to Jesus, we are headed towards and down the road of the unpardonable sin. We say, not today. I'm too, I'm too young. No, no, I can't do it now. I'm too busy. I don't have time for Christ. And we go through, and we think these are very uh, mild excuses, but what happens is through those excuses, and people will simply tell me, hey, you know, I'm just gonna live my life however I want, full tilt and sin, and then right before I die, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna receive Christ. So, so really? You, you got that wire? Are you in control of that? Right, I mean, do you really have the opportunity to live however you want? Because I simply tell them, you know, 30 years from now, you tell me that now, 30 years from now, you don't even know that you would want to do that because of the hard condition of your heart. You see, with every rejection of Jesus and every opportunity you turn away, your heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder until it reaches that point that you don't want Christ. We were ministering to an extended family member he was terminally ill, and he was the most crusty, rude, awful old booger you ever met. And, and uh, we were visiting, and it was my aunt's dad, and his name was Pete. And, and my wife, who is the sweetest, most wonderful evangelist, because she's so sweet, she can just share the gospel with just the biggest uh, jerk you've ever met in your life. And so Tammy's in there, and she's sharing the gospel, and he just got, he was really sweet to her at first, and then he just got really hard, and he's like, God's never done anything for me. I'm not going to do anything for him. And I mean, he's on death's door, like we thought. And so we got to, we told our aunt, my aunt, we'd be praying for him. 
he died a month later, and I was telling her, I said, well, how'd it go with Pete? She said, it was, she said, all our prayers worked, because she said at the last minute, she, there was a hospice worker that was a Christian, and she was coming and ministering to him every day, and the last day before he, he, he died, she shared Christ with him one more time, and he reached out and took the lifeline of salvation. You see, there is a line that you're going to cross. There is a time coming when you, but not everybody has the slow version of death to get their house in order, right? Victor Marx was here last week and said his brother was hit by a vehicle at 80 miles an hour T-bone and killed suddenly. Instantly, he was dead. You, you don't always get to map out how you go out. There's a slow way, slow disease, or the fast way. You just get the aneurysm and boom, you tip over. Or the heart attack. The Holy Spirit's ultimate desire is to draw you to Christ. Stephen, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 7, he said this. Because there are people that say you cannot resist the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, you can. People do it all the time. And Stephen declared in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, that's a way to warm up a congregation, isn't it? <laughs> you bunch of stiff-necked Newberry Parkies, right? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. When he was preaching to them, and then it says that they stopped up their ears, almost like kids on the playground. They put their hands over their ears, and then they gnashed their teeth, like, ah! and they stoned him to death right there on the spot. They were cut to the heart, and they just had to shut up that message because they did not want to hear it anymore from Stephen. It's a powerful thing to have that last opportunity, isn't it? I don't know how many people that you've had the opportunity to be at their bedside or they haven't come to Christ and you just have that, that last moment. One of the most powerful, and I might have shared it with you before, but it was so powerful to me. A woman passed away in a rest home and, and they revived her and she was like, you know, 85 years old. I'm like, why'd they revive, you know? I guess they don't have a no resuscitate order, so they revive them. And so her daughter was, a, uh, her granddaughter was a believer, and she called me, Pastor Rick, you know, my grandma died, and, and they've revived her. And I asked that question, like, why did they revive her at that age? And he says, well, she, he, she's not a Christian, so I'm glad they revived her. Will you come down? So I went down, but when I got in the room, she said, now, Pastor Rick, she can't talk. I'm like, how am I going to pull this off, right? And she can't talk, but she understands. Mentally, she's aware. And so her name was Mary. And I sat on the edge of her bed. And that's one of these things when the whole family gathers. So the whole family's in the room. So you're actually preaching to 15 people. And, and I, I grabbed Mary's hand and I said, Mary, I said, I understand you can't talk, but you can, if you understand me, squeeze my hand. And she squeezed my hand real hard. And, and I said, Mary, I said, I know you passed away this morning and they've revived you. Are you afraid to die? And she squeezed my hand. And I was like, Ouch. Like, a, can an 85-year-old squeeze your hand that hard? Well, I guess when they're afraid of death, they can, right? Like, well, okay. And I said, Mary, you don't have to be afraid. I said, God loves you, and I just shared the love of Jesus with her, that he would forgive her of her sins. And I, I said, I know that you can't repeat after me, but in your heart, that's all you have to do. And I led her in a simple prayer just to believe in Jesus. And afterwards, when I first started talking to her, her face was just filled with terror. And afterwards, there were these tears, and just her face was just radiant with joy. And I said, now you don't have to be afraid. And a couple of weeks later, she passed away. You see, from Mary, she got that last shot. 
even resuscitated that morning to get the last shot. And not everybody gets that shot. There's a time you're going to say no for the last time for those who have not surrendered to Jesus here today. And I want you to know, Paul the Apostle, after he preached the gospel, he said, my blood, your blood is not on my hands because I am sharing with you the hope that's in Jesus. That he died for you and rose from the dead that you might have everlasting life. Bob Vernon, which was one of my favorite guys listening to any of those who are older Christians, he was the assistant chief to the L.A police department, and he has all these great messages on Firefighters for Christ. You can listen to him, but I used to listen to him 30 years ago. And he had all these great cop stories, right? And, and one of his great cops, he, he would say, do you know that you can, on the radio, the other cops, he said, you can tell how fast some, uh, a police chase is going by the volume of the person's voice. And I'm like, really? He's like, you know, if they're like, yeah, in pursuit, you know, it's, oh, 50 miles an hour. When it's, and there's, it's 90 miles an hour, right? But he shared this story. He said, I showed up on the scene, and this guy was dead. He was, uh, there was a warrant out for him. He had done some uh, you know, bad stuff. And he showed up on the scene as the officer in charge of the, the, uh, the shift. And he goes up to his guy and says, hey, what's going on? He goes, well, this is what went down. We pulled up. He pulled up a gun. We shot him and killed him. He says, this, uh, uh, this Jesus freak over here saw the whole thing. And not, the officer was talking to Bob Vernon, not knowing Bob was a Christian. And Bob goes, okay, I'll go talk to the Jesus freak. So Bob goes over here to talk to the Jesus freak, and the Jesus freak's like sitting on the curb because he watched the, and, and he goes, tell me what, you, what happened. He goes, well, he said, sir, I, I don't know if you believe in God or not, but he said, I'm a Christian. And he said, I, I came out of this store, and there's this guy standing over there looking kind of ominous about 30 feet away. And the Lord so powerfully said, I want you to go share the love of Jesus with that guy. And he said, I kind of fought against it. I'm like, Lord, I mean, not to, I don't want, man. And he goes, no, I want you to do it. And he goes, okay. So he said he went up and he shared Christ with the guy. And the guy was very patient. The guy listened to him. And he goes, thank you very much for sharing. But I do not want, I've, I've decided not to believe in Jesus. He said, as soon as, he said, as soon as I turned away, the cops rolled up. And they, they jumped out of their car, uh, car. And this guy pulled the gun. And they shot him just as I turned away. He said, sir, I've never seen God's love displayed to the very last minute of somebody's life like that my whole Christian walk. God loved that man and gave him one more chance. You see, the thing is with, with sin is that we think down the road we'll do this or that, but you, time changes you. Time changes you. you you're not gonna be the same person you are now in 30 years without the love of God. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And the ultimate payment you're going to pay is eternally separated from God. And God has done everything that he possibly can to make that not happen. Even hearing this message today is a last-ditch effort because it's no stretch whatsoever to say three to five people that are in this room right now won't be here at this time next year. With age, various things, and all that happens in life, three or four, five won't be here next year. Some will be gradual, some will be sudden. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In Revelation 22, 17, I love all the different categories that are invited to come. The spirit and the bride say, come. This is all come to Jesus. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Please, I beg of you, come to Jesus, those who are holding out. For whatever purpose, whatever the obstacles, may the Lord in his grace break it down that the God of this age that has blinded your minds might be rebuked right now as Jesus, who is stronger than the strong man, binds him that he might plunder the most valuable thing on planet Earth. The only, only eternal thing on planet Earth is the human soul. Let's pray. Father, we just ask by your spirit that you would meet us I pray for those men and women that are here today and they just don't know what it means yet to surrender to you. And I pray that today that this would be the opportunity. Draw them now, Jesus, by your spirit. As we close in prayer, I just want to invite you, if you're here, that you would open your heart and pray in the quietness of your own seat to invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. It's a personal relationship and a simple exchange between two hearts, God's love for you, and as you, you open your heart to have love for him. Pray with me now. Just repeat in the quietness of your own seat to open the door of faith to your heart. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I realize I need you this morning. I surrender my life to you and pray that you would be the Lord of my life. Fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit to give me strength to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed to open your heart to the Lord, it's a walk of faith. It's that simple. Welcome to the family. I'm glad you came. It's a blessing. Amen. The Bible says when one sinner repents, they, all the angels in heaven rejoice. So if one sinner in this room gave their life to Jesus, the angels are, are they're celebrating. Amen. Let's stand together. And uh, I want you to know that if you need prayer, there's a prayer team that they'll lay hands on you. They'll pray for healing. They'll encourage you, whatever the ministry that you need. Don't leave here today without receiving that encouragement and touch from them. And may the Lord keep you in his grace as you walk with Jesus this week. Let's worship him with this closing song. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, oh. Whoa, 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 now I worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, whoa.
times of trouble I'll keep my heart seeking you I will keep my heart seeking